Princeton University and then went to a succession of industrial research labs, in particular to um, the fabled AT&T research labs uh, until, until they, they collapsed. And then he went to the NEC Research Institute uh, in New Jersey, which was sort of in some ways, at, or at least attempting to be the, uh, the spirit to, to um, the old, old AT&T research labs until it collapsed. And well, now he's at our research lab. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's a good omen or not. But I, I met him when. Prepare to die. <laughs> I, I met. We, we met when I was working at Siemens Corporate Research, which was uh, across the way from from um, NEC Institute. And um, so we, we called ourselves the Axis Powers on the not the management. Um, so. Uh, so Warren has done a, a lot of really interesting things, I, I think, in, in a bunch of different areas. He's giving a talk later today on um, Rangeland, a public talk, for about, basically about public policy and uh, voting systems. Um, he's giving right now a talk about cryptography. He's done work in matrix theory. He's done work in mathematical physics, looking at the feasibility of things like DNA computing, um, of uh, those, those orbital power things for lifting things into space, like on bean stocks or something, um, at quantum feasibility, various quantum computing models, um, all kinds of interesting things. So basically, uh, I, I don't know, I, I guess if you have a, a really difficult problem, yes, Warren, but it's been probably figured out pretty quick. Um, so let, let me leave it. Now he's, he's going to be discussing a, a really difficult problem, a problem that was designed to be difficult. Right? Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. So I'm going to talk about how I broke AES if I did it, which is um, for those of you who don't get the joke because you're not in the U.S. There was this character O.J. Simpson who uh, was some football player in the U.S. who uh, allegedly murdered somebody, but was judged innocent, and then wrote this book entitled uh, How I Killed Her If I Did It, which made him lots of money. Um, so you may be asking, well, did I break EAS or not? Well, uh, <laughs> yes, but, but the word break may not quite mean what you think. Um, in particular, there's what I call a non-constructive break, um, which we'll say what that is. And uh, those are some caveats. And, of the form, I haven't really proven certain things, basically because in the present state of knowledge you can't prove them. But uh, so, so one makes sort of uh, plausible um, plausibility arguments or, or probabilistic models which aren't really true, and then you prove it within the model. But uh, well, we'll talk about that too. Um, so, well, uh, so um, AES appears to be broken in this sense, and um, lots of systems like it are also appear to be broken in this sense. And um, these these cryptosystems could contain trapdoors, which is that uh, somebody knows how to break them, even though the rest of the world thinks that they're secure. Um, and we'll show kind of how such trapdoors could be there. And, um, and then the question is, well, can you fix it? And uh, we'll have some ways to try to fix it. Uh, they come from the same theory. 
Uh, so first of all, what the heck am I talking about with this non-constructed break? Okay, so what is a break? Uh, let us say that a break of a cryptosystem is, it's an algorithm such that if, if the algorithm inputs a bunch of plain text ciphertext pairs that it, it gets from an eavesdropper or something, um, it can deduce the key. And then once you know the key, your life is easy. And, and as long as, and, and a break means that this deduction happens faster than it's supposed to. So with AES, which is supposed to be 256-bit secure, it's supposed to take, in order to guess the key, um, basically you're not supposed to be do, do better than guessing the key, which takes about 2 to the 256 guesses. And if you can break it faster, like 2 to the 156, then uh, that's a break. All right. Uh, okay, so if a break algorithm exists, it, it's busted. And, and supposedly it, it's secure, so no algorithm exists. But, but what we're going to do is we're going to make it plausible that a break algorithm exists, but we're not actually going to know what the break algorithm is. I'm just going to make it plausible that one exists. So it's, there's this break algorithm known to God, but not necessarily known to me. And if God were to tell me this algorithm, then I could use it to look at plain text, safer text pairs from him and, and quickly deduce the key. And, and then if you tried again with another key, I could use it again. As long as God has told me this algorithm, I'm golden. I can just break the security of the entire world. And, and maybe you don't need God. It might be that uh, the actual inventors of AES um, knew this trapdoor, i.e. God's algorithm is the trapdoor, in which case they could easily prove to us, I have a trapdoor by breaking some examples. Um, but if they don't have a trapdoor, then I don't see any way that they can prove to us that they didn't have the trapdoor. <laughs> so that's not, that's not good. Um, okay, so that's what a non-constructive break is. And uh, what it would be good to have is, an, is a really unbroken cryptosystem, which even if God gives you hints, um, you know, God says, try this algorithm. Well, it's not going to work because there's no algorithm that works. That's what you want. That's real security. And AES does not appear to have that kind of security. Okay, so how did we get AES? Uh, so here's the uh, trail of tears. So first there was DES, which stands for Data Encryption Standard which was proposed by the U.S. government as a standard encryption method that everybody in the universe would use, like banks used it to uh, transmit money. Uh, and during the proposal, the NSA, which is the secret government agency, reduced the key length to 56 bits from the original key length of the proposal, which was 64 bits. And it was widely suspected that the reason they did that was because they had enormous computer power and with only 56-bit key, they could just exhaustively break it. Um, and in fact, um, so everybody started screaming, look, this is a clear case of, of cheating, and they could probably break 56 bits. And um, eventually, in fact, somebody did break it by brute force. They built a special purpose machine in 1998. It costs a quarter million dollars, and it takes one day, and it breaks the code. And uh, well, with all the screaming, the brute force attacks, and then the fact that this Matsui guy broke it by uh, non-brute force, you know, he, he actually had this theory, which in fact is going to be highly related to ours, of uh, uh, how to break it. He showed you could break it in two to the 40 uh, DES evaluations, which note is a break because it's smaller than two to the, two, to, two to the 56. Uh, okay. Uh, okay, so then it was broken. Theoretically, it was broken by brute force. And uh, nobody wanted to use it, of course. 
And then the US government, to make matters worse, came along with this clipper chip, which uh, everybody was then extremely loudly screaming about after the DES proposal, and it sunk. Um, okay, so then they, it finally just got so embarrassing that in 2001, they said, let's have this worldwide competition to build a new crypto system, which will be basically the world standard or the American standard. Um, what? Oh, haha. Well, the Clipper chip was proposed by the Clinton administration. Um, it was supposed to be a, another uh, standard crypto system. Eh. But it was A, supposed to be secure, except B, there was a trapdoor known to the US government, but not known to anybody else. So it was secure against everybody but the US government. And the idea was the entire world would use this Clipper chip happily because they love for the US government to spy on them. And so the Clinton administration actually thought that, and so they wanted to make this legislation that everybody had to use the Clipper chip. And anyway, anyway, it did not work. Okay, so then they had this worldwide competition uh, sponsored by NIST, National Agency, uh, uh, what is it? Institute of Standards and Te Technology. Uh, to come up with a proposal of a really secure, unembarrassed encryptism. And all the cryptographers in the world could submit a proposal. And then there was this public judging process that went over multiple rounds where they could all criticize each other's proposals and on and on. And um, anyway, the winners of this competition, and it really did look like a good cryptosystem, was AES. And, and this looked really secure. It was supposed to be 2 to the 256 secure. And um, it was supposed to be secure in, in every possible conceivable way. Plain text, ciphertext, even if you know the plain text and the ciphertext, even if um, you, know, you, you get to use the, the black box that encrypts, um, you still can't figure out what the key is. Um, in every possible way, it's supposed to be secure because it wasn't just going to be used as a cryptocism. It was going to be used as a, a like subroutine inside all kinds of other cryptographic protocols. So it had to be secure in every conceivable way. And it supposedly was. Okay. So then um, you wait a few years, and in 2005, Dan Bernstein broke a large number of implementations of AES. And this, this is serious. In fact, this is probably more serious than I'm going to discuss. Um, okay, now in some sense, Bernstein's break was not really a break, because it wasn't a break of the algorithm itself as an abstract algorithm. It was a break of just some implementations of the algorithm. And what he would do, in fact, he actually set up a demo system that does this, is you send a plain text to his website. His website sends the ciphertext back to you. It just implements AES. And then, and here's the trick, it sends also back the time that it took to do the encryption. Or, or, or wait a minute, actually, you don't even need that. You just, you just time the delay. All right, so what you get is these plain text, ciphertext, time triples. And, and it's the time. That's the information leak, is, is the time it takes. And so what, what he, he did is in one day of doing this, he gathered enough timing information that he could deduce the key. And he demonstrated this with his, his own web server. And so, uh, and then the problem was, what's going on? The problem was that this, this cryptocism involves these things called S-boxes, which are lookup tables. You know, you, you give it a byte, it outputs a byte by looking it up. And, and the trouble is that a lot of modern computers have caches. So what happens is you do the lookup, and if the, if the table is in cache, you get the answer back fast. And certain parts of the lookup table may be in cache, and certain parts not. And, and so you can try to deduce um, what was being looked up, which gives you the information you need to break the system. And so amazingly enough, um, it was busted. It just takes one day. All right. 
So then you could say, well, you know, if I built special purpose hardware that made sure not to have a cache or I turned off my cache, I wouldn't have this information leak. It would be okay again. But, you know, if you do that to a computer, it really slows it down a lot, which decreases the attractiveness a lot. And then even if you did do that, some optimizing compiler or something might come along and say, oh, this fool has turned off the cache. I'm going to turn it back on to make it faster, and you won't even know. So, uh, very bad. Um, okay, so what else happened? So now, in 2007, this is me, where I'm going to talk about my non-constructed break, which is a theoretical break, which uh, is better than Bernstein in the sense that I'm really attacking the algorithm itself, not an implementation. But it's worse in the sense that, you know, it's, it's kind of only a non-constructive crack. But, you know, my verdict after both me and Bernstein is uh, they should really get rid of AES. I mean, I think we can design something better that is resistant to both me and Bernstein. Um, all right, so... There were two other algorithms in this uh, uh, contest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there were, they were like, the, there were, I don't know, 50 submissions or something, and then there were supposed to be five finalists, which were the, the good cryptosystems, and then it's all the five finalists looked, looked pretty good, but then this, this Ringdahl thing that won the competition looked the best, so they, that's what they used. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if quite a lot of those uh, other algorithms are also uh, susceptible to my attack and Bernstein's attack. In fact, Bernstein's attack is just, just devastating because practically every criticism out there uses an S-box, and, and it, everything that does that, it just kills. As soon as you use your cache in an S-box. So you gotta, you got to figure out a way to make a cryptism that doesn't use S-boxes, basically, if you want to be immune to Bernstein. All right. So um, my whole attack is going to depend on Blex, which is my name for binary linear error correcting codes. I just like using disgusting words. So what is a Blex? So the parameters are NKD, where N is the length of the code word, there's two of the K code words, and D is the Hamming distance, such that any two code words disagree in at least D places. So for example, here is the Hamming black. <laughs> so it block length seven, because each one of these words is seven bits long. Dimension four, because this generator matrix has four rows, which means there's 16 words, which is two to the fourth, which you get by taking every linear combination of these rows in mod two arithmetic. If uh, distance is three, which means any two of these words are at least uh, three apart, disagree in at least three places. So for example, the second row and the first row disagree in these, these three green places. Uh, all right, and there's also this notion of the dual code, which is the set of uh, words of the same length that are perpendicular. In mod two arithmetic, they have dot product zero, that is, uh, with the uh, primal code words. So for instance, this word, assuming I got it right this time, <laughs> is supposed to be perpendicular. So let's try it with, with this last word. Uh, uh, the dot product is 0 plus 0 plus 0 plus 1 plus 0 plus 1 plus 0. So that adds up to 2. And 2 is 0 because we're in mod 2 arithmetic. So it worked. Uh, and, and, and furthermore, uh, and it continues cyclically. And this, the reason this is a cyclic code is every uh, word is a cyclic shift of the one above it to the right one spot. So you only have to remember the top row. And uh, so supposedly, if you took the dot product of any one of these with, with any one of those, you would get zero. All right. So that's Blex. 
Um, linear means it's closed under, uh, so it's a set of these two of the words, but if you, if you add any two words in mod two arithmetic, you get another code word. That's linearity. And, okay. Okay, so now let's talk about the crypt system. So supposedly, it was supposed to be, by design, uh, this secure. Um, and what it does is it's an algorithm that inputs a plain text which is 128 bits long, outputs a ciphertext the same bits long, or, or it could go in the reverse direction. Um, and, and the way it transforms the plain text into ciphertext is it does 14 rounds, um, and each round is the same, uh, except uh, for the key bits. So what's happening is each round, you XOR your 128 bits with a chunk of the so-called expanded key. So the key is 256 bits word long. You do a one-time transformation that transforms the 256-bit key into the uh, this long, 1920-bit expanded key. And that's what, the expanded key is, is what I'm going to guess uh, when, when I do my code breaking. And it's also all you need uh, to do the encryption algorithm. All right, anyway, what you do is you take a chunk of this expanded key uh, and you XOR it with the bits. And then you do your S box, which is a byte-to-byte -byte lookup table with 256 bytes in the table. Um, so uh, since there's uh, 16 times 8 bits, that adds up to 128. So it, uh, you transform all the bytes in this nonlinear way with this lookup table. And they're only, only using one magic lookup table that they've designed very carefully. And then, um, then you do some GF2 linear stuff, which means XORs. Um, but it's just, it's just some additions in mod 2 arithmetic. Uh, to think of it as like a matrix multiplication. Uh, and then uh, that's transformed to 128 bits. And then um, you do it again with the next chunk of the expanded key 14 times in a row. Those are the 14 rounds. And then you are done. And if you want to go in the reverse direction, you just do the 14 rounds in the reverse direction. You do the inverse matrix. You do the reverse direction uh, lookup table. And you do uh, XORing as its own uh, inverse. All right. So, yeah. OK, so what are the ingredients of our attack? Well, all right. So Matsui, uh, who invented linear cryptanalysis to break DES, which was the old uh, failure. <laughs> uh, and we're going to use that again. And it was thought by the inventors of AES and everybody else that it was going to be immune to linear cryptanalysis because they thought, they thought they understood linear cryptanalysis. But it turns out we can add a few bells and whistles to linear cryptanalysis that uh, are going to kick their butt. Uh, all right. And the few bells and whistles are going to involve the theory of blacks and this thing I call the code of the code. And then, so, so with a cryptosystem like AES, is associated something I call the code of the code, which is a black. So there's a black corresponding to AES. And this black has a minimum weight word, or a minimum Hamming distance in the black. They're the same thing, which, which will be called W. And it turns out that the weight, that is the number of ones, is, is coding terminology for the number of ones, is weight, is uh, crucial. So if, if, this, if this code of the code happens to have a small Hamming distance, small weight, then um, my break algorithm is going to run fast. Um, OK, but then it turns out that there are many, many codes of the code you can associate with AES. 
And, and the hint from God is the good one. So God tells you which one to use, and then it's going to turn out to have small weight, hopefully, and, uh, and then you're golden. So that's the way it's going to work. And so now I will have to explain to you various things, like what is linear cryptanalysis? And, what are, and why is this thing green? I have no idea, but okay. Uh, okay, and some terminology. Okay, so one terminology that's, that is useful is, is this notion of unbalance of a Boolean signal. So a Boolean signal it has mean value m. Like, for example, if it's 75% of the time it's 1, then m would be 0.75. And the unbalance would be 0.5, because unbalance is given by this formula. That's the definition of unbalance. And um, it's convenient because I've defined unbalance such as it's always between 0 and 1. So, for example, a balanced signal has unbalanced zero, because a half minus half is zero. Good. And a constant bit, as the opposite of the spectrum, has unbalanced one, because uh, one minus half times two is one. Good. So, as unbalanced, uh, logic circuits, so any Boolean function can be built from just one kind of gate, called a NAND gate, which I hope you all knew. And, but, but there's a subclass of Boolean functions that's called linear functions which means linear over mod 2 arithmetic uh, things. And they're not built out of NAND gates. They're built out of XOR, NOT, and constant bit only, which I'm illustrating here. Here's a linear circuit, for example. And this, this little plus sign in the circle is an XOR gate, which is also the same as mod 2 arithmetic uh, plus operation. So for example, uh, the output of this gate would be X plus Y in mod 2 arithmetic. And then, and then you XOR it with 1, and you get the output of that gate. And then you XOR it with Z, and you get the output of that gate. And then you run it through this noise gate, and you get the output. That would be a sum logic circuit. And what is a noise gate, you're asking? A noise gate is something that flips uh, from 0 to 1 or 1 to 0 with probability P. And, and uh, we talk about the unbalance of a noise gate by the same formula as there, only with P instead of M. Uh, so, for example, a, an unbalanced 1 gate would always flip, and an unbalanced 0 gate would just uh, randomly change into a coin flip. Right. Okay. And um, linear approximation. So, an N input, one output Boolean function, we talk about it being approximated by another Boolean function, which means how often the outputs disagree is a measure of how good the approximation is. And... Um, and so equivalent to having a, a good approximation is equivalent to the notion that A plus B in Montserrat-Rubinic has large unbalance, right? So if A perfectly predicted B, then A plus B would always be zero and you'd have unbalance one, which is the maximum. If A was completely unrelated to B, it'd be a random signal with unbalance uh, uh, zero. Because random signals have unbalance zero, right? I said that before. So, okay, so we're interested in the best approximations of one Boolean circuit by a linear Boolean circuit. Uh, and there's quite a theory about that. Uh, okay, I'll talk about the theory in a minute. Uh, what else? Other important facts. Reversibility lemma. Oh, so the interesting thing to notice about this XOR gate thing is that it's reversible. I mean, I said this is the input, this is the input, and this is the output. But you could equivalently say, well, uh, any, any two that you like are the inputs, and the other one is the output. Uh, Perfectly valid interpretation. It still works. 
in every application. And similarly, these noise gates are also reversible. It's just a matter of opinion which is the input and which is the output. Uh, okay. And now there's this amusing noise gate mobility lemma, which means you can slide the noise gates along the wire. And you still get an equivalent circuit. And not only that, it can slide right through this XOR gate. Like suppose I, I said, oh, I'm going to slide this, and I'm going to slide it over here. That's the equivalent circuit. Or you could say, no, I'm not sliding it over here. I'll slide it over here. Equivalent circuit. Or I'll slide it further. And I can slide it all the way down here. Same circuit. All right. Uh, okay, but there's a little, a little problem when there's like a T-junction in the wire. And then what you have to do uh, is you have to slide it both ways, like, uh, like that. That would be the equivalent circuit. So T-junctions are, are bad for, for my uh, life, because things, these things double. Uh, fortunately, uh, we're not going to need them. Um, uh, what else can happen? Oh, we can also talk about the unbalance of a signal instead of the unbalance of a gate, which is if you have a zero, constant zero, it runs it, run it, run it through a uh, noise gate, and here's the signal that you get out. Well, the unbalance of this signal is just the same thing as, as what I was calling the unbalance of this gate, because I say so. And uh, so in particular, if it's a constant signal, that's unbalanced one, and if it's a random signal, it's unbalanced zero. Okay, what else? And dip, 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 dip. A piling up lemma. All right, so the piling up lemma, which is really cute, um, is that if you have a bunch of noise gates all in a row with different unbalances, u1, u2, then that's equivalent to just one noise gate, and the unbalances are the product. The unbalances multiply. And you can prove this by induction. You just prove it for, for two gates, which is just some one line of, of algebra, and then that, that inducts. And, and this only works if these, if these uh, probabilistic bit flipping decisions are independent. And what happens is, if they are uh, positively correlated, uh, then um, it's an inequality. Um, okay, what else is going to happen? Oh, well, some, some just uh, kind of trivial statistics. If, if you have a bit, except that you don't know the bit, you only get to see a noisy versions of the bit because they've been run, if your bit has been run through a noise gate with unbalanced U, and you want to know what was the original bit. Well, you can keep on doing this experiment, and pretty soon uh, you're going to figure out what the bit was with high confidence, and it suffices to use this many experiments to get high confidence, which is, depends on C exponentially, uh, approaches 100% confidence. Right? So, so I don't know, if I, if I have a... Uh, something within 1% of being random, I need to do 10,000 experiments, which is a square of 100. All right, good. So linear cryptanalysis. So here's how linear cryptanalysis is going to work. Okay, so step one, whatever cryptanalysis you have, there's some circuit made out of NAND gates and stuff that describes it. So write down a circuit diagram. Okay, step two, uh, this circuit is going to consist of linear stuff and nonlinear stuff. And, and in AES, the only nonlinear stuff there was was this S box. So 
Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all the S boxes and going to replace them by their best linear approximation circuit. Right? Uh, so it's like here's an S box. There's some eight inputs and eight outputs. And, and so just, just focus on one of these outputs, say this one. Um, I'm going to replace uh, whatever circuitry uh, takes these inputs and leads to this output by a linear approximation. So let's say this is output one. So I'm going to make output. So these are the ins. This is a linear approximation. And here's a noise gate. And here's the output. And this noise gate is not really going to be random noise. It's going to be whatever bit flips you need to make this linear approximation agree perfectly with the original circuit. It's kind of the approximation error. So if the linear approximation is pretty good, let's say it gets it right 75% of the time, that means your noise gate has to flip 25% of the time. And, uh, and you would label this noise gate, if you wanted to be uh, anal about it, well, you could label it with the, with the percentage of the time it has to flip, uh, but you could also label with, with um, you know, some little circuit diagram of exactly, it's really a deterministic flip, explaining exactly when to flip. Right, so you, you can attach a label saying exactly when this thing flips, if you want. All right, so step two is we, we replaced the, uh, okay, we replaced everything by the linear approximations plus, the, plus these noise gates that make it exactly equivalent. Now we use the noise gate mobility to slide all the noise gates along the wires until they reach the qubit inputs. Because what's going on in AES is, uh, hmm. well, first of all, by reversibility, we can regard this as the input, and these are the outputs. Um, I mean, if you, if you don't like that, um, I mean, these, these S boxes are bijective. They're just 256 lookup tables that happen to be bijective functions. Uh, I mean, you, you could just replace, think of the approximation as, as going in this direction if you want. I don't care. Anyway, let's view this as the input, and this is, these are the outputs, and then this flipper gate. So we, we've moved it by noise gate mobility to be next to the input, and what happens in AES is there was this plus gate with a key bit. So what happened in AES was the input uh, bits got XORed with the key bits, and then they got... Uh, pumped into the S-boxes, and more stuff happened. But anyway, um, all we need to do is slide this sucker down here. So I will do that, and it's equivalent, equivalent circuit. And there's no T-junction, because the way they designed AES happens to make it maximally easy for me to do this. There's no T-junction in the way. I just have to slide it one uh, hop. All right. Uh, okay, what's step five? So now you're given plain text ciphertext pairs, and your goal is to deduce the key. But what we're actually going to do is we're going to deduce the key bits. Well, we're going to deduce the key bits contaminated by random noise, which really is deterministic noise, but I'm going to pretend it's random noise. And we're actually not going to deduce the key bits. We're going to deduce linear relations satisfied by the key bits. Uh, all right. So uh, let's, let's start doing an example before this gets too abstract. So here, uh, okay. So let's suppose. Let's suppose what? Suppose what? Suppose what? Suppose. What? Okay. Let's draw a picture. So here's AES, which view is a black box. It inputs the plain text, 
it outputs the ciphertext. And it also inputs the key. Now, what we've done by means of our uh, noise gate hackery is we've made AES into a linear approximating circuit. Plus, the nonlinear stuff is all encapsulated into these noise bits, which are joining up to the key. And now, by reversibility, we're going to review the plain text as an input, and we're going to view the ciphertext also as an input, and we're going to view the key as an output, because I'm allowed to do that. And so now you take your plain text, you take your ciphertext, you input it into this linear network, uh, you get these signals out, and these are approximate key bits. So like this is, say, the seventh key bit, and it's an approximation because of this noise thing, which uh, corrects the approximation error. All right. And um, the thing is, there's 256 key bits, or actually expanded uh, key. There's, there's 19... There's 1920 expanded key bits, and there's only uh, 128 of these uh, inputs. Well, 256. So you can't. I mean, there's there's more uh, there's more unknowns than knowns. So you can't just deduce the key right away, but you you can deduce linear relations among the key. I mean, this whole linear network, and 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 these are just constants. This is, is this is a linear relation between all of these key bits. And you could write down whatever uh, linear relation it is, and let's write it down, and let's say it's this first row. So this key bit plus its random uh, error thing, the R is the random error thing, and the key is the key bit one, and key bit three, and le let's say here's the linear relation, you add them up in mod two arithmetic, you get one, that's the linear relation. And here's another linear relation which we happen to have deduced. You're going to get 256 linear relations in all each, each time. Uh, and then, since these, these random noises are not actually random noise, they're deterministic, you're allowed to do row operations. And if we were to do the row operation of adding these two equations, these suckers add, and, and remember, uh, x plus x equals zero in mod two arithmetic. So these two suckers go away, and these uh, don't go away. And so here's a, another linear relation which you can deduce, and it has weight two, meaning there's only two terms here instead of weight three. Okay, uh, whoop. so to uh, sort of eliminate unnecessary detail, you can view this as generator vectors of a black. So this thing, uh, view this as encoded by the, the binary word, which is a one in the first position, and a one in the third position, and a one in the seventh position. Uh, one, three, seven, right? So that's a weight three word, and every time you do a row operation, you're just adding the words in modular arithmetic. So these, these words generate a black, and here's the word you get by adding them. And this black I'm calling the code of the code. Okay? So with the cryptosystem comes this code of the code black. And there could be many codes of the code because there are many possible linear approximation circuits I could have used. And if I use another one, I'm going to get a different code of the code. But okay, pick one. And, um, Okay, so for IES, the parameters of this code are, it's 1920 bits long, it's dimension 128. Uh, why is it dimension 128? I mean, I guess because there's, there's supposed to be 128 of these linear relations, except I thought I said 256 linear relations. Oh, no, 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 because there's, a one, there's 128 uh, uh, chunk-wide bit of the key each, each uh, time. Yeah, so there's 128, sorry. 
So that's the dimension of the code, and, and w is the, the least weight in the code, whatever it is. And uh, oh, the minimum distance is crucial. Okay, so now what are we going to do? So every time you have a plain text ciphertext pair, you get a bunch of linear relations among the key plus noise bits. And that's 128 generator words for a black. Now some of these are sparse. They have low weight. And low weight is good for a decryptor. Because uh, what we've got to do is we've got to average out the noise. You keep doing more and more plain text ciphertext pairs and average out the noise, and then you're going to figure out the exact linear relations uncontaminated by noise. <sighs> okay, so uh, let's go back. Like, let's say, let's say whoops. Uh, what? There is no noise. It's, it's really deterministic. It's the nonlinearities. It's the approximation error in this approximation of the circuit by a linear circuit. Like, if this, if some um, a bit of this circuit has 75% has uh, prediction accuracy by the linear approximation, then there's 25% there's flips have to be put in by these noise gates. And it, you then treat that as, as just random. Because the designers of AES have been very, very careful to make these pass all kinds of randomness tests to make it act as much like random noise as they could. Uh, so we're going to pretend it is random noise and hope that is sufficiently true. Um, and in fact, I, I'm, not just, I'm not just bullshitting because you know, this has been tried. Matsui tried this and he actually broke DES and it did work. And in fact, it worked better than it, it should have worked. And the reason it worked better than it should have worked is because I said that this piling up lemma unbalances multiply, but if, the, if these things are correlated, then um, this is inequality which happens in the right direction to make it work better. And they are correlated positively because these lookup tables are bijective maps. So, right, if I'm mapping 256 things to 256 things, and I'm never allowed to map two things to the same quantity because it's a bijective map, that means if I flip one of these bits, that makes it more likely another bit flips, which means there's a positive correlation, which means it works better than it's supposed to. So what's going on here is uh, in this, like, like linear relation, right? If I flip this bit, that kind of makes it more likely that this bit flips. Is so the, the correlations are are small, but they, they work in the right direction and, and empirically to make it work even better than expected. Anyway, here's a linear relation, and I, I would what I will do is I will bring these two R's, these random things, to the to the right hand side, say, and then I will add zillions and zillions of these together from zillions and zillions of plain text ciphertext pairs. Now what I will deduce is, is all these R's thing, when I add zillions and zillions of them, they'll, they'll kind of cancel out because they're random noise. They'll average out. And then, and then I will be fairly sure, um, what will I be sure of? Oh, well, you see these K's are constant because we're reusing the same key every time. So what I, what I will be sure of is, is the value of k1 plus k9 in mod 2 arithmetic. I will become more and more sure of that. And that's a linear relation. And then what I can do is once I know all these linear relations that I'm quite sure of, I just use Gaussian elimination to deduce from the linear relations what the key actually is. And then I output it. And then I announce victory. 
All right? So that's the, that's the plan. So what are you going to do? You've got to average out the noise and you've got to do Gaussian elimination. And how long does it take to average out the noise? That depends on the unbalances. All right? The, and the fewer of these R's you've got, that means the fewer of these unbalances you've got to multiply together, which means the bigger unbalance in this equivalent gate you get. So it's very sensitive to this weight, right? If the weight's two, there's only two things in this product. If the weight is three, there's three things in this product. It's, it's exponentially bad pretty fast, the higher the weight. So you have to have low weight to make this attack work. Uh, and then once there's low weight, you can run it for fairly few times and still get good enough statistics to deduce everything with high confidence. So that's the idea. All right. So the question is, what is the weight? Since that's a crucial parameter. All right. First thing is, they've been very careful to make the noise bits really look random, even though they're not really random. All right. And, and it tends to work better than I expected, thanks to positive correlations. Now, here's the thing. The, one of the biggest open problems, if not the biggest open problem in coding theory, is, is there a family of blacks which is better than random codes asymptotically? Nobody's ever found anything that's better asymptotically than random codes. And it's understood what the parameters of random codes are. I mean, you, you give me a random code with some uh, block length and distance, I mean, some block length and some dimension, and um, with high probability, the distance is with n epsilon of some formula given by Gilbert and Varshalon. It's a known formula. So it's, it's, uh, it's understood how random codes behave with probability going to one asymptotically. And, okay, and, and since, since I do not, do not believe that the AES designers are actually better than like 200 years of coding theory research, they probably have not solved this open problem. In fact, they've probably done considerably worse than a random code, which means that their weight is smaller. But I don't believe they've done better. Uh, okay. And, and for, furthermore, they, they were unaware of this whole theory or said they were so. Yeah, okay, so, uh, so we can estimate how well things are going to do by just thinking about random codes. And we're pretty much in asymptopia, so random code approximation works pretty well because the parameters are large, right? It's, not, it's a, nine, a 1920 uh, long code with dimension 128. That's a pretty asymptotic, asymptotic uh, ought to work pretty well. All right. But it's even better. It keeps on getting better for me and worse for them. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, so this S box that they carefully designed is 80 inputs and 80 outputs. Now, I just, by, by my computer, I just examined every possible linear approximation to them. And I found that there are five different best linear approximations. And if you pick any one of the five, output or, or input, I mean, they're the same. Uh, by twisting your head around. <laughs> it gets it right this many times, which is, note is better than 50%. 50% would be 128, but it gets it right 144 times, which corresponds to unbalance 1 eighth. So that's what you're working with. Uh, okay. So here's the thing. There are many, many blacks, because there are many, many linear approximations. What I could do is with each S-box in this circuit, and, and um, yeah, there's 200 S-boxes in the circuit. They're all the same S-box, but huh, there's 224 S-boxes. With each one, I could use any of those five uh, uh, choices of my linear approximating circuit on any of those outputs, because each one has eight outputs. 
So that's like, uh, what the heck is that? That's five to this power possible number of choices I could have made to get a code of the code, which is approximately equivalent to this power of two. An enormous number of choices that I could have made. And I get God to tell me the best one. Uh, okay, so, okay, so if there's an enormous number of different blacks, we're going to conjecture that all act enough like a randomly chosen black of those parameters. And, and if that's so, then trivially, just absolutely trivially, there will be tons of these blacks with tiny minimum weights. Because, uh, why? Well, because if I just pick a, a generator matrix at random, for one thing, uh, it's going to have an all zero row, 1,900 zeros in a row, uh, if I try this many, and actually I'm trying far more, uh, okay, or, or 1,900 zeros in a row and one one, that'd be a wait one word. Okay, so I expect that there's going to be an enormous number of uh, blacks that God could have told me with tiny minimum weights. And then, uh, and if you believe that, and you believe their minimum weight code words have enough in linear independence, um, then it dies. Um, and is it true? Well, I mean, you, ha you, have to, you have to believe this conjecture, but, you know, they've tried very, very hard to make it as random looking as they could. And, and, even, if, and even if I'm kind of wrong, like, like, you know, it really is a pretty good code. And, 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 so, and so I really need, like, two to the thousand times more juice than I've got. Well, no problem, because this is more than two to the thousand times more juicy than that. I mean, I've got, I've got so much elbow room here that, that even if I'm a little wrong, uh, I'm, I'm probably still right uh, that, that, that there is a, a code that God could tell me that would break this sucker. So, uh, well, why is this a non-constructive crack? Because you know, I have to get the hint from God, which is exactly what linear approximation circuits I use, exactly what black I get. He tells me what W is. All right, so that's why it's non-constructive. And, and I don't need God. You know, if I did this enormous pre-computation, I suppose I could, I, I could actually find the best black, um, but it would be so enormous, I couldn't do that. All right. Now, it could be that the AES designer actually knew a good black. Because what can happen is, um, look, if I just write down some generator matrix with small weight words in it, with only a few ones in, in, in some rows of the generator matrix, and then I just take some linear operations on the generator matrix, um, you know, I start adding the rows together, those, those rows with low weight are going to disappear. And you're not going to know. When I, when I show you this scramble generator matrix, it's entirely equivalent through row operations to my original one. You're not going to know that there's low weight words in there. It's going to be very hard for you to realize. But I'll know. And I'll use it as a trap door, right? So you're following me? You're glazed over? Where, what's the status? Uh, the point is, somebody could design a crypto system that, that's got a code of the code that has low weight words. And, and then they just uh, scramble up the generator matrix by doing some row operations. And 
you would not know it has low weight words. So it looked like a perfectly good crypto system, but it'd have this trapdoor that I knew, the designer knew. And maybe they did that for all I know. Uh, and if they did, well, they did. And uh, yeah, so it can be very hard for you to tell. In fact, it's known that it's NP hard to, to find out what the minimum weight of a, of a black is from its generator matrix. And it's NP hard to even to approximate it and uh, so forth. So they could have this trapdoor and be very hard for you to know that they had the trapdoor. All right. So how am I doing on time? Oh, pretty, pretty soon I'm running out. All right. So how can I try to be, how can you try to build a crypto system to fix this that's immune to this kind of attack? Well, first of all, you don't want S-boxes because then it's uh, Bernstein's attack. Uh, you don't want any big enough lookup table that the cache is going to come into play, you see, or Bernstein's timing attack will kill you. Uh, but I do, I do want to, so I'm going to talk about how to build a big S-box with kind of, without lookup tables, just with some circuit. And, um, well, hmm, how's it going to work? Well, it's going to be very simple, actually. So here's the inputs to your S-box. And you pair them up. You run them through an AND gate, which is a nonlinear gate. And then you run them through a uh, matrix. Perform a matrix vector multiplication in GF2 arithmetic. And then, uh, and then you got a bunch of outputs out. Now here's the thing. If this matrix is cleverly chosen to be, uh, to arise somehow from the generator matrix of a black with big minimum distance, then um, there's a security theorem that this sucker is going to be immune to all these attacks. And what's the point? The point is, in order to break this, and all the nonlinearity is coming from these AND gates, uh, let's see, what's going to happen? The point is somehow we're going to get, we're, in order to break it, we're trying to deduce linear relations among certain subsets of these outputs. And the point is, there is no linear relation among a small subset of these outputs because if there were, then this code would have too small weight. Basically, the linear relations are going to correspond to code words if you play the game right. And the code words all have large weight, which means you know, suppose it has weight 57 is the minimum weight word. That means that the minimum linear relation has to have involve at least 57 outputs. Which means, in this piling up lemma, that the unbalances you're working with are a product of 57 suckers, each of which is an approximation to an AND gate, which, which has unbalance a half, I think. So it's going to get a half to the 57 as the uh, kind of security. So, so you can make enormous securities by, by building your S-boxes in this way out of... Um, error-correcting codes which have big weight. And, and, you know, there's plenty of theory out there in the world about how to do this. Uh, well, so I can use known, known theorems from people that do error-correcting codes about how to construct error-correcting codes with big distances and decode them fast and do these matrix multiplications fast and blah, blah, blah. So I just, I just steal the known theorems from, from coding theory, meaning black theory, and um, what happens? Well, I claim that there exists a family of crypt systems, QN, and encrypts 5n plain text bits. And it runs in linear time, which is optimum. 
It requires this many parallel gate delays, which is optimum. The only thing it uses is, is like word-wide XORs and things that, that involve, arise here and, and AND gates, which is very fast implemented in circuitry and in software without a cache getting involved. And uh, all right, and this is optimum. And uh, linear size secret key, which is optimum, except it's this constant factor. And, and achieve security level this, where D is this, because there's, there's LECs available that, that have linear size uh, minimum distance. And it's immune against all the attacks I was talking about. Maybe not immune to every attack, but all the ones I was talking about. Um, and, uh, and here's a sample design. Quick memorize this uh, hexadecimal string. <laughs> and if you do, and convert it into binary, and make me the first row of some generator matrix, and then start doing the other rows of the generator matrix or cyclic shifts, you get a cyclic black. And it, it generates a black with these parameters uh, code. It's, it's called a BCH code. And this is the magic uh, thing that uh, brought to us by BC and H. Uh, all right. So anyway, you extend with this parity check bit. You get this code. And that yields, by this construction, an S-box with 1,024 inputs, 175 outputs. Oh, oh by the way, uh, uh, this construction generates S-boxes with fewer outputs than inputs. <laughs> but that's OK. You can still build criticisms out of them. Uh, and, and all imbalances are very, very small. And, and it would be fast. And it would be fast in software. And so, uh, you know, so here's, here's a design of a crypto system, basically. Or, or anyway, the design of the hard part of the crypto system, such that its security would presumably be 2 to the 96. And you've got to use Black theory, and you've got to design these S-boxes very carefully, and then you're safe against this kind of attack. And, um, okay, so the paper, the paper goes into much more detail about all this stuff, and I've got these tables of, of useful binary codes that you can use for your own designs, and you know, various numerical investigations of uh, how well random codes really, um, how, you know, investigating the validity of my conjectures about random codes. I'm investigating it with some computer experiments. That's in the paper. Uh, uh, won't talk about that. All right. So this is the end. And now there's this new paper, which I will just, hasn't actually come out yet, <laughs> but it dawned on me, something that probably should have dawned on everybody quite a long time ago, that you can build something I call a universal cryptosystem, uh, which is something like NP completeness, but not. So, uh, the deal with NP-completeness, which is not what I'm talking about, but it's analogous, is that there are certain complete problems, like SAT, which are as hard as any problem in NP. They're like universally hard. Any problem in NP you can transform into a SAT problem pretty easily. Uh, that's equivalent. All right, so what I'm going to claim is that these universal cryptosystems are as hard to break as any secret key cryptosystem is hard to break, up to like polynomial factors or something that don't matter because presumably they're exponentially hard to break. Uh, and even if the cracker has a quantum computer, that won't matter. Still true. All right. And, and ba the basic idea, which I'm oversimplifying a lot, but, but this is the germ, 
is that the universal cryptosystem is every cryptosystem all in a row. Right? So if you give me some weak cryptosystem, I, I use it. I've got a weak encryption. Now I use the next weak cryptosystem, I use it. Now I use the next cryptosystem. And I just, I just keep going until I've used all possible cryptosystems all in a row that have algorithm length less than L for some L. And the resulting cryptosystem is supposed to be as hard to crack as the hardest one in the string. And it would be as hard to crack if they didn't kind of interfere with each other. If they, if they kind of canceled out somehow, that would be a problem. But assuming they don't, uh, well, it's going to be as hard as any one. And presumably, if there's any cryptosystem out there in the world that's hard, if you make L grow, eventually it's going to find it. It's going to be in the, the composition, and it's going to be as hard as that. And you make L grow slowly, like, like proportional to log n or, or log log n or something. Grows, it grows slowly, but it grows to infinity. So then, where, where n is the length of the, uh, of the, uh, the number of bits in the plaintext that you're encrypting. And um, this thing is as strong as any criticism. And, and now, there's a lot of details I've omitted. And, and you have to, like, like I was saying, that a caveat is, well, what if they kind of cancel out? And uh, you know, the funny thing is like, I, I can prove that they don't. But <laughs> I, I can't talk about that. Uh, all right. So anyway, that, that's the vague idea of, of how you make a universal cryptosystem. And um, for secret key cryptosystems, I think you could actually do this. I don't think it would be kind of economically competitive. It would be slow. But I, I think it would be fast enough that it would actually work. And if I sent an email to you, I could encrypt it in like 10 seconds or something, which is slow but acceptable if I were to use the universal secret key cryptosystem. On the other hand, for my, my public key universal cryptosystem, um, there's like additional layers of crud that, that have to come into the construction which slow it down and uh, I don't even think it would be I mean it, would th it theoretically would work but, but the constants and, and polynomials would be so bad that it, it would be too slow to be useful at all but uh, still it's interesting alright so questions uh, my, yes um, now, that wasn't a practical attack, but it did create enough concern, and there was a fundamental weakness in SHA-1 that led to uh, a competition now for the new hash function. Yeah. So I suppose my question is that um, you have a theoretical attack here as well, so what, what are the, what have been the repercussions of this? Have the, you know, the, the, the powers that be taken notes of this, or have they, have they ignored it? Have they said this is not fundamental, or is there... You're asking, is there a relation between me and them, or...? I'm just, just curious, you know, because they, they did... It, one thing would be, like, of course they want to, um, they want to ignore this because they want to keep it quiet or whatever, but they did react to SHA-1, so... All right, well, I, I know... I, I know about the SHA-1 crack, and I don't know too much about how it was done, but I know a little about how it was done, but anyway, it's... It seems to be completely unrelated ideas to the way I crack this. Oh no, they're not related ideas, but it's just that right. there was a theoretical attack that was not practical at the time, but did lead. Well, it might be that it's practical. Um, I'm not sure what the status is right at the moment, but I think there's some. Unless I checked that there was some project to actually, you know, do the computing to exhibit an actual crack of SHA. Um, 
And I think they were saying like, oh, you know, if we get a lot of the internet involved, we'll actually be able to do this crack. And I, I'm not sure where the status is at the moment. Um, but, but, but I mean, you know, she, she, did, she did actually break some artificially, version, artificially weakened version of SHA-1, which kind of demonstrated that her ideas, you know, really were working on it. She just didn't want to do the full computation. And so the, the claim was that, you know, SHA-1 was supposed to have some security level, and her thing would, would break it in some smaller uh, computation. And she verified this by her theory by cracking a weakened version. Yeah, so SHA-1 was this... Uh, standardized by some international standards body uh, secure hash function. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of those secure hash functions can also be attacked by my techniques, but, but I'm going to only get a non-constructive crack, so, so theirs is much better. Um, and also, my, my techniques for building secure systems could presumably be used to build secure hash functions. Um, so in case you want to enter the competition, uh, and um, how the heck did they do it? Well, that's kind of a mystery, but uh, I mean, there was just stuff going on inside SHA-1, which was like supposed to be random, but actually it wasn't as random as it was supposed to be, and there were correlations, and there were biased bits and things, and, and she just spent like years and years and years like figuring out the right biases until she had this like collection of little, little advantages on little bits of the circuit here and there. And, and the, whole, the whole advantage somehow added up to, you know, enough of an advantage that she could crack it faster than she was supposed to. And so, I don't really understand how to duplicate that, but... <laughs> it wasn't that, it was just that it was a, that was a theoretical attack that wasn't practical, but it led to somebody changing something. So that was my question, like, uh, has your attack led to anybody changing anything? No, nobody's changed anything, and I told, I told the uh, AES guys, uh, What's their names? Those two Belgian guys, Damon and uh, Rizden. Yeah, well, I told them, and you know, they said, "Oh, well, yeah, that seems interesting." But I guess it is a non-constructive crack, so ha ha. But uh, look, I don't think you should be happy. Yeah, I mean, and, and if you actually look at the the official NIST um, rules of the competition, it defines security to be secure even against non-constructive cracks. It said there is no algorithm. And so, you know, by the official rules of the competition, they're busted. And, and also, like they also wrote in, in some official thing in the competition thing like, oh, you can use S-boxes because we know that, you know, they're immune to timing attacks, not understanding that the cache is an important element of modern computers. So, you know, Bernstein just totally kicked their butt on that one. So, between the two of these things, I don't think you should be happy. Because AES is just supposed to be secure against everything. That's its purpose in life. It's, a, it's supposed to be the, the super secure standard that you just don't have to worry about it anymore. As long as you use this, it's secure against everything. And, and they're not there. And, you know, I think they could be there. And, and these ideas I'm talking about for fixing it, I, I mean, I, I believe they, they will fix it. <laughs> well, I mean, certainly this one will fix it in principle. And, and that one, uh, well... You know, there might be some other attack I don't know about, but it's immune against these. Uh, but I'm still not happy because, you know, there, the AES algorithm they designed was actually a very nice algorithm. It's very fast. It's, it seemed to be doing very well. And, and, and my fixes just take longer. They're not as, they're not as attractive. 
except for the fact that they work. But <laughs> so you're gonna you have to pay something. It's the current status. All right. Well, why don't we? Um, people can continue to harass the speaker after. Do um, <laughs> we formally call this too close? There's muffins and coffee outside, and and there's another talk at four on a completely unrelated topic. <laughs>